You can be seated. God will bless his people. God will bless his people. And there's no thing and no one who can stop him. Romans 8, 28. And we know all things, all things, all things that happen through creation, all things that happen through people. All things work together for good. They work together for your blessing. This is really great news. This is really great news, brothers and sisters. What does this mean for you? It means that nothing, nothing can stop God from blessing you. Nothing in this room, nothing outside of this room. No one in this room, no one outside this room. No thing and no one, past, present, and future, can stop God from blessing you. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But I do know one thing. You can't stop what's unstoppable. The unstoppable blessing of God. The unstoppable blessing of God. Praise God. As we find our place in Genesis 27, you can start turning there now. As we find our way there, this is really what we've been looking at all the way through Genesis, right? Not one thing, not one person has been able to stop God from blessing his people. Nothing. Darkness, forbidden fruit, murder, catastrophic flood, ethnic division, famine, war, infertility, sexual immorality, and so many lies. Nothing. Nothing has been able to stop God from blessing his people. And no one. Adam, Eve, Cain, Noah, Ham, Canaan, the builders of Babel, Abraham, Sarah, Lot, everyone in Sodom, Lot's wife, Lot's daughters, Abimelech, Hagar, Ishmael. As we look to our passage, Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, or Jacob. No one has been able to stop God from blessing his people. And this is good news. This is good news. But how do we know this is true? We went to Romans 8, 28 earlier, but is there more? Does everything hang on that one verse? I don't think so. How do we know this is true? Because of the plan of God. Because of the purpose of God. And because of the presence of God. We know that this is true, that God will bless his people because of Genesis 27 and 28. First point of the sermon this morning is the plan of God. Or if you like a little bit of a longer point, the plan of God to bless his people. Just so you guys don't get nervous, the first point will take the majority of our time this morning. So don't get nervous. Chapter 27 Verse 1-45. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. 
He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not be a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to, his, to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? 
He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? What a story. What a story. Just the characters alone. The characters alone are so fascinating. Are they good or are they bad? Are they heroes or are they villains? Well, let's work through and see for ourselves. The first character in our story, Isaac, verse 1. Isaac, is he a hero or is he a villain? In this chapter, I believe he is a villain. Why do I think that? Well, this is in direct opposition. His desire to bless his son Esau is in direct opposition to the oracle of God in chapter 25, verse 23. Just flip right over one page. Chapter 5, verse 23. The Lord said to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. This is the important part. The older shall serve the younger. The older, Esau, shall serve the younger, Jacob. And you've got to believe that Rebekah shared this oracle with her husband. My wife, Le- Leah, received an oracle from God. I would expect that she would share it with me. 
We don't see that in the text. We don't see her sharing this with her husband, Isaac. So maybe she didn't. I think she did, but maybe she didn't. Even then, Isaac is going against the will of God. He is a a villain because of this reason. Esau has married two Hittite wives. Two Hittite wives. You saw that a couple weeks ago. Two Hittite wives. And when we look at Genesis 27, verse 46, so just one more verse than what we read, we see, if you look at, there's a footnote. Footnotes are really helpful, by the way, sometimes. The footnote in chapter 27, verse 46, talks about how these women that Esau married were the daughters of Heth. Daughters of Heth. And you don't have to turn here, but back in Genesis 9 and 10, we see that they would be underneath the curse of Canaan. Because of Ham's sin, Ham's son Canaan would be cursed, and everyone through his lineage would be cursed, and they are part of that curse. So for Esau to marry these women, he is in direct opposition to the blessing that he was supposed to receive, that he should have wanted to receive. He's downplaying the Abrahamic blessing. He's downplaying the curse of Canaan. And his father, Isaac, would have known that. He should have known that. He should have made a decision based upon that, but he prizes his son Esau, the one who he liked better. And we see him as a villain. Obviously Esau is a villain for all the reasons that I just mentioned. So we have Isaac as a villain, Esau as a villain. What about Rebecca and Jacob? I think they're villains to you. <laughs> you could argue that they thought about the oracle that God gave to Rebecca, and they were functioning based upon that. I think that is one argument. But they put matters into their own hands. They were willing to lie. They were willing to deceive. They didn't think that God could do the seemingly impossible. And so they took matters into their own hands and Lied, they sinned. They are villains. Isaac is a villain, Esau is a villain, Rebecca is a villain, Jacob is a villain. There's one hero in the story. One hero in chapter 27, and it is God. It is God. And I think that point explains why this chapter is so long. I wonder if you guys were asking yourself that, like I was when I started to prepare for this. Why 45 verses? 45 verses on a pretty straightforward storyline. The storyline is not that complicated, is it? Rebecca helps Jacob deceive Isaac so that he can steal the blessing from Esau. One sentence. That's the chapter. (laughs) Why write such a long chapter, Moses, the author of Genesis? Well, one, I think it just increases the drama, right? I mean, the drama is just dripping from this chapter. We feel it, don't we? Every point along the story feels so precarious, so fragile. Things need to go one way for it to work. And at each point, there's multiple ways for everything to fail, for everything to crumble. 
So many details that have to go right. I mean, just think about it. That Rebecca overheard Isaac talking to Esau. That's one thing. Or think about Esau's hunting expedition. What if the wild game came out too early and he killed the wild game and he's able to prepare it and bring it back to his father while Jacob is in the room with his father? That could have happened. Or just think about Jacob's deception. Think about all the things that had to work for him to pull this lie off. Isaac's poor eyesight. If he had been able to see, he would have seen everything clearly of what was happening, and the plan would have failed. Or just think about the soup. What if Rebecca messed up the soup? Think about the goat skins. This is amazing to me that this worked. The goat skins that she put on him. That worked. It didn't fall off. He somehow was able, I mean, I'm not sure what was going through his mind that he was able to use goat skins, or Isaac felt goat skins and thought it was Esau. But that worked. And the thing that I think we feel more than anything, the tension in the story, is this interaction between Isaac and Jacob. Oh my goodness. So many opportunities for Jacob to slip up. To use a different voice or to give away his identity. Maybe I particularly feel this because I am a horrible liar. (laughs) So I read chapter 27 and I am feeling for Jacob. I'm a horrible liar. I hate those games, uh, Secret Hitler, all those games that you have to lie. I lose every single time. So I feel for Jacob here, and the fact that he's able to pull this off is amazing to me. And when you remember what's on the line here, that everything's so precarious and so fragile, and you remember what's actually on the line, and what would happen if the deception does not work, if the lie doesn't work, what happens? What happens if what God promised in chapter 25, verse 23, doesn't happen? And Isaac puts the blessing on Esau. And the younger Jacob serves the older Esau. And God has proven to be a liar. What would have happened? Well, God would be proven a liar. And if God is a liar, then everything we've done this morning is stupid. Christianity is not true. I should close right now, not even pray, and you guys can enjoy your Sunday afternoon. Christianity would fall to the ground if this plan doesn't work. There's a documentary, Free Solo, that I like that kind of captures the same storyline here, a similar storyline where there's a simple storyline but it's broken down in very dramatic scenes. Uh, The documentary is about a guy named Alex Honnold. And Alex Honnold likes to climb big mountains without any gear. He'll look at some of the biggest rock walls in the world and he'll try to to climb them. And Free Solo captures his mission to climb up El Capitan. El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, which is 3,000 feet high. So he starts at the bottom and he works his whole way up without any gear. 
At any point along the way, if he falls, he dies. And the storyline is pretty simple. If he falls, he, di- he, falls, he dies. That's the storyline. And yet the documentary takes up to two hours. <laughs> They'll break down the scenes and he has his fingertips just on a little tiny ledge. And you just feel your hands sweating watching this. It's an amazing documentary. It's an amazing accomplishment. You probably guessed it. He makes it up to the top. He doesn't die. They didn't show that part. He makes it up and he's safe, which is incredible. But I think the most incredible thing about the documentary is that as they show him going up this mountain, they'll pan to some interviews with him and say, aren't you nervous? Aren't you nervous to go up El Capitan without any equipment? And Alex Honnold just looks at the camera and is like, no, it's completely safe. And we just can't understand how that's possible. But I think the reason why is because we are transposing our abilities to make it up that wall onto Alex Honnold. Alex Honnold knows he can make it up there. For him, it's actually pretty easy. As we look to Genesis 27, everything feels so precarious, so fragile. One misstep, and everything falls down. Christianity falls down. But to God, there's nothing fragile or precarious about it. God didn't break a sweat in chapter 27. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything in 27 was easy for God. He planned it, and he didn't have to strain. He didn't pull a muscle halfway through chapter 27. And let's also remember that he was controlling the universe at the same time. It's not just chapter 27, but he was controlling the whole universe. He is upholding the whole universe by the word of his power. While God knew how many hairs were on Jacob's goatskins, he was keeping the planets in their orbit, orchestrating the fall of a sparrow in a forest that you've never even heard of. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. All that he pleases. Even the sin of his people. Even the sin of his people. God planned the sin in his people for the blessing of his people. Did you notice that as we were reading? His people, who were the villains in this story, he used as a means to bring them blessing. How did he do that? I don't know. He's God. He can do those types of things. Romans 8.28 is true, though, and we can rest there, that he works all things. Rebecca and Jacob's deception, Isaac's favoritism, he worked all things in chapter 27 for their good, for their blessing. Evil doesn't originate from who God is. We need to make that really clear. It does not come from his being. He is completely holy. There's nothing evil in God. 
but he is sovereign over evil. And that's also true. Even in his people. Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob's sin led to Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob's blessing. The deception led to blessing. It's amazing. It's amazing how he can use even his people's sin. I think we naturally look at God as if he has to maneuver around our sin. He has to dodge our sin. No, he plans our sin. He even plans our sin for our blessing. If you think about it like enemy warcraft, I think we look at our sin coming at God and he has to to dodge it. But that's not true. That's not the way God works. No, just like Pharaoh that we see in chapter nine of Romans, he raises up enemy warcraft, our sin. He locks onto it and he blows it up with his sovereign grace. Every single one, every single one of your sins has been planned by God in some miraculous way for your blessing. Your sin and others' sin. Which is an incredible encouragement to you. It should be. I know you're being sinned against by Christians. I know that because this church is filled with sinners. If you are a member of Desert Springs Church, you have and you are and you will be sinned against. We don't want that to happen, but it's just reality. If any man says he has no sin, he is a liar. We are sinners saved by grace, and you will be sinned against. But the encouragement is God will use even the sin of other members in this church for your blessing. Every single one. Every single one. He can even use our sins which I find difficult to apply, maybe even more difficult than applying the sins of other people. I'm not sure if you feel that. How can God use my sin for my blessing? Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's maybe harder for us to view our sin in that light? I mean, conceptually, it is a little bit weird It's a little, it doesn't seem to connect. How can our sin bring blessing? I understand that, but I actually don't think that's the primary reason why it's difficult for us to accept that truth. Because I think we can work through that in our minds when it comes to the sins of other people, how God can use the sins of other people. I think the reason why, the primary reason why it's hard for us to accept that is because of our pride. Because of our pride. I think we have a very high estimation of what we can do in the light of God's sovereignty. I think we have a very man-centered view of our sin and not a God-centered view of our sin. Don't flatter yourself that your sin can stop God's plan to bless you. He is greater than your sin. Your sin has Horrible consequences. Horrible consequences. It can shipwreck your marriage. It can divide this church. And it can hurt your intimacy with the Lord. 
but it can't stop God's plan to bless you. Can't stop God's plan to bless you. And neither can the sins of God's opponents. Neither neither can the sins of God's opponents stop God's blessing. God planned the sin in his opponent Esau for the blessing of his people. As for Esau, he meant evil against Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob. But God meant it for the good of Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob. He used Esau for the blessing of his people. You will be sinned against by believers this week, and you will be sinned against by unbelievers this week. As you head into work tomorrow, your boss will probably sin against you. I know a lot of you have unbelieving family members. They will sin against you. I know you students have unbelieving teachers, and they will sin against you. And it will hurt. And I'm sorry. That's why we pray for you. But take encouragement that that sin is not random. It's not random. God is working all things for your good. All things. And this light and momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Every single sin by unbelievers, every single sin from the opponents of God works for the blessing of God's people. And we see that supremely in the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't have to turn here. Acts 2.23. Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So that's God's plan. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The opponents of God killed the Son of God. But God used that for the blessing of God's people. The worst sin in history, the worst sin in history, God used to bring the greatest blessing to his people. And if he can do that, he can bless you in everything that you're going through. But in every sin, that is being directed against you by believers or unbelievers, he will bless you. When the opponents of God crucified Jesus, they must have thought, our job is done. It is finished. Jesus agreed with that assessment. It is finished. It is finished. All the work that needed to be done has been finished. I will save my people. I will bless my people. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. My plan to bless my people is unstoppable. Put me in the grave and I'm coming back up again. You can't stop what's unstoppable. With so much evil in the world, so much evil, we've got to hold on to this. We've got to hold on to this. 
that with every rebellious move, God is using it to bless his people and to curse his opponents. And to curse his opponents. God planned the sin in his opponent Esau for the curse of his opponent Esau. We won't read it, but chapter 27, this interaction between Esau and his father is heartbreaking, isn't it? He comes to him. Don't you have one blessing? Just one blessing. Not one. Only curses. Only curses. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, take this as a warning. God is gracious, but if you do not submit your life to him and trust in his son, Jesus, you will stand before the Lord on the last day. Every single one of us will stand before the Lord on the last day. And if you're not trusting in him, there will not be one blessing. There will not be one blessing for you. Only cursing. You'll come before him with your filthy robes of unrighteousness. Because God is holy and because he has to punish every sin for him to be a good judge, for him to be just, he has to punish every act of unrighteousness. And as you come before him, he will lay his heavy hand of judgment upon you for all of eternity. And just so you know, this is all of our stories. This is not just you. All of us come with our unrighteousness. Apart from Christ, all of us come with our robes of unrighteousness and we would have his judgment for all of eternity too. If it weren't for our older brother. Can I introduce you to my older brother? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. And he comes, and we, we come here with our unrighteousness, and he comes with his righteousness, his robes of righteousness, and he offers, he offers something amazing to you this morning. Don't miss it. He offers to give you his robes of righteousness. And he offers to take your robes of unrighteousness. He says to you, if you take my robes of righteousness, my Father's hand will come down and he will bless you. And if you'll give me your robes of unrighteousness, my Father's hand will come down on me and I will take every one of your curses. And if you believe that, if you trust in that message, the hand of judgment that should fall on you falls on Jesus. And the hand of blessing that should have fallen on the Son 
falls on you. A great exchange. A great exchange. If you will trust. If you will trust that message. He will give you every blessing that has been won by his son Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that's the message that we've got to take to the nations. That message God's purpose. It is his purpose for his people. Point number two, the purpose of God. The purpose of God. Or if you want to ride a longer point, the purpose of God to bless his people through his people. The purpose of God to bless his people through his people. Chapter 27, verse 46. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Badan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Badan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. We should have had a couple of deja vu moments as we read those verses. We've heard these blessings before. Like our text says, they come from the Abrahamic covenant. They come from the Abrahamic covenant. Isaac's blessing of Jacob, that God would bless him and make him fruitful and multiply him comes from the Abrahamic covenant in chapters 12, 15, 17, and 22. We also get notes of the covenant of creation coming through our passage. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, Adam and Eve's mission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's purpose for his people, as we, see, we actually see this throughout every one of the covenants, is to bless his people through his people. He has a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he has called his people, his purpose for them is to bring blessings to his people. The purpose of God for his people is to bless his people, made up of all nations. For Esau didn't like that. Esau didn't like that. And so he goes about trying to subvert that purpose for God's people. He knows that it will really irritate his parents if he marries 
a Canaanite woman. And so he goes and he marries her. And so what we get, we get this competition, this brotherly competition. And really, it's even more than that. It is a competition between the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis 3.15, that God would raise up the seed of the woman, a seed from Eve that would crush the serpent's head. That's Jacob. And this other brother, Esau, he is the seed of the serpent who is in direct opposition to the people of God. And we have a race. We have a race. Who is going to multiply and fill the earth? Who is going to take dominion of the earth? The seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent? We have a race. Jacob, seed of the woman. Esau, seed of the serpent. The race starts three, two, one, go! And we have our winner. We already have our winner. The race has barely begun, and we have our winner. And his name is Jacob. How do I know that? Why is Jacob going to win? Why is Esau going to lose? Esau's the one with all the wives. Esau's the one with all of the children. Esau's the one with the Costco membership and the Suburban Extended Edition. He's the one with all the kids, and Jacob's single. (laughs) He's not even married yet. Jacob drives a two-door convertible. He doesn't need space for kids. You know his mom probably bought him a convertible. (laughs) Why? Why do we know that Jacob is going to win, that the seed of the woman is going to win? Because God said so. Because God said so in Genesis 25, 23. The purpose of God to bless his people through his people is unstoppable. He said that Jacob, or that Esau would serve Jacob. And when God said that, it was as good as done. One thing to note here is that this does not encourage passivity though, but activity. The plan is unstoppable, but it encourages activity from Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob. Isaac prays for Jacob. Rebekah sends Jacob, and Jacob goes. Friends, don't miss the application for us in the Great Commission. The result of the mission is secure. We see in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, that Christ has a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue around his throne. John saw it, and it's as good as done. The mission is secure, though. The mission is secure, but the mission is not over. Should not encourage passivity, but activity. So I want to press three questions on you guys. Three questions. Will you pray? Will you pray? And this is particularly for the men in the room. Men, will you pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his field? Look to Isaac as your example. Fathers and spiritual fathers. There are over three billion people living in the world right now who will go to hell 
who will go to hell if we don't get the gospel to him. Three billion people, and right now there is not a plan. There's not any missionaries there. If that doesn't change, there will be three billion people who will live and die, never hear the name of Jesus. Will you pray like Isaac? Bring your children before the Lord and ask him, would you use my children? It's a scary thing. I get it. The thought of praying for Jane and Bo, my two kids, to go into the hardest parts of the world is scary. But we can trust him. We can trust him. The plan of God to bless his people is unstoppable and he will care for you and he will care for your children. And that truth helps you moms, you biological moms and you spiritual moms in the room to send your kids, to send the young women that you are discipling just like Rebecca. Rebecca loved her son, but something was better for her son than for him to be with her. She put down her attachment to him to send him to Padan Aram where he needed to go. So I want to encourage you moms, will you send? Will you send your kid when they come to you and say, mom, I want to go. I want to go to Russia. The Russians need the gospel right now. Will you send? To everyone, will you go? Will you go? Padan Aram needs to be blessed. And we have a message. We have a message of blessing. Will we go? Will we go to the nations? We have an encouragement. We have an encouragement to go because as we pray, send, and go, Jesus will be with us. Jesus will be with us. Go and make disciples of all nations. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Point number three, the presence of God. Point number three, the presence of God. Chapter 28, 10 through 22, presence of God with his people. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north, to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. 
He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. In verses 10 through 11, we see Jacob leaving, leaving everything that he had known. Can you imagine how he must have felt heading off to a land he didn't know about, hoping to marry a woman he had not met yet? How must he have felt all alone? He wasn't alone. He wasn't alone. God shows up, doesn't he? He shows up and Jacob sees a ladder. Again, footnotes are helpful if you look at the footnote next to ladder. This is more of a flight of steps. Flight of steps. This would be like a pyramid or a ziggurat. It's a ziggurat. Some of y'all are thinking, praise God, what in the world does that mean? (laughs) A ziggurat. We've seen this before. We've seen this before. Chase talked about this. Genesis 11, right? The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. And you've got to remember here that these stories would have just been etched into Jacob's memory. So when he sees that ziggurat, his immediate thought is, I've seen this before. I've heard about this before. I've heard about the Tower of Babel and how they tried to build a tower to get to heaven. And so he would have heard a message similar to this. And when he saw that, it was as if Jesus was speaking to him, you can't build a tower from earth to heaven, but I can build a tower from heaven to earth. You can't come to me, but I can and I will come to you. Oh, that's good. That's so good. And then the Lord confirms the global blessing of the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. Verses 13 through 15. And then something really amazing happens. This blew me away as I was studying. Verse 16, Jacob wakes up. And what is his response? How awesome is this place? How awesome is this place? And then what happens afterwards? Right after he talks about how awesome this place is, what does he talk about? He doesn't talk about the place. He doesn't talk about the land. What does he talk about? The presence of God. The presence of God in 17 through 22. That's his focus. The place was awesome because the presence of God was awesome and his presence was in the place. His presence was the gain of of the Abrahamic covenant. That was the blessing, the ultimate blessing. And Jacob gets a taste of it for just a little bit, for just a little bit. He wakes up, right? He wakes up from his dream. It ends. The clock strikes midnight. The angels, the tower, and the vision of the Lord go away and we're left wanting more. We're left wanting more, aren't we? And there is more. 
And there is more. Let's end here. Let's end here. John 1. John 1, 43 through 51. You can turn over there. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip from Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? (laughs) You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the tower. Jesus is the tower and he has brought heaven to earth and earth to heaven. He is God in the house of God. He is the gate of heaven. He is the door, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the means to the blessing, and he is the blessing himself. It's his presence. It's his presence that's the gain of the gospels, of the gospel, brothers and sisters. It's his presence. Debbie read that for us earlier in Revelation. The gain of heaven, the gain of heaven is the presence of God in heaven. And that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed for all of eternity. For those of you who have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, nothing can stop you from enjoying God's presence in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you that your plan to bless us is unstoppable. Would you give us eyes to see that? Would you give us faith to trust? Father, would you keep us faithful? Faithful to believe these promises until we see your son Jesus face to face. In the new heavens and the new earth, We will see him face to face. Keep us faithful to that day. In your son's name, amen.